If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Everyday Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You may know Jackson Pollock, the painter famous for his iconic drip paintings. But what do you know about his wife, artist Lee Krasner? On Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock, the story of the artist who reset the market for American abstract painting, just maybe not the one you're thinking of. Listen to Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. Due to the virus, I'm recording from home, so you may notice a difference in audio quality. On this episode of Newt's World, I was recently intrigued by an article I read about a series of earthquakes in the Ring of Fire, the volcanically and seismically volatile section of the Pacific that runs from New Zealand up through Indonesia and Japan, across the ocean to Alaska, and down the west coast of the Americas to Chile. The Ring of Fire is really a ring of subduction zones. Nearly all the earthquakes in the region are caused by tectonic plates colliding with each other. The idea of the really big one, a massive earthquake striking the west coast of the United States, could have a catastrophic effect on the entire region. What are seismologists studying, and how will they determine when it's going to happen? I'm really pleased to welcome my guest, Harold Tobin, Professor of Earth and Space Sciences at the University of Washington, and the director of the Pacific Northwest Seismic Network. Dr. Tobin, it's great to have you here. How did you get involved studying earthquakes? I was an undergraduate looking around for a major, like so many kids at age 19 or so. And just on friend's recommendation, I happened to take a geology course or two and was interested in the subject. And that actually led to a summer job working for the Forest Service at Mount St. Helens just a few years after the big volcanic eruption. And I was an East Coast kid, went to college in New England and flew out to Washington and spent the summer at Mount St. Helens. And that just sort of blew my mind. The idea that not only was the Earth something that had this very deep time history, 
but that it was actually active today. And my whole interest really sprung from there and eventually led to really trying to understand how plate tectonics really works. And that led into studying earthquakes. Are you focused largely on the northern part of the Ring of Fire? My specialty throughout my whole career has been on what we call subduction zones, places in the plate tectonic system where two plates collide with each other. And subduction zones are really where the most of the action is in plate tectonics. People have heard a lot about the mid-ocean ridges, but the biggest earthquakes, the tsunamis, and the building of coastal mountain ranges and everything all comes from subduction zones. So I have worked here in the Pacific Northwest region, but also have spent a big chunk of my career working in Japan and in Costa Rica, New Zealand, the Caribbean in the Barbados area, which is also a subduction zone. People don't really necessarily know that. The globe is surrounded by these areas where plates converge, and I've studied quite a few of them. Most of them are in these coastal regions like the Pacific Northwest, like Alaska and the Aleutians or Japan. Tell us a little bit about this ring of fire. The term the ring of fire is one that maybe the geoscientists find a little bit oversimplified, but the concept is pretty clear. The idea that surrounding basically the Pacific plate and the Pacific Ocean is a whole series of these subduction zones or places where plates converge. The ring of fire name comes from the fact that there's a volcanic activity, the cascades of the Pacific Northwest going right up into the Alaska and Aleutian system. We call it the Aleutian Arc because they're called arc volcanoes. Down through Kamchatka and Japan, the Philippines, and then ultimately Indonesia and all of that being kind of linked to basically the motion of the plates that are the Pacific Ocean floor. Now, there's two parts to it. There are the volcanoes and then towards the ocean plate from the volcanoes is virtually always a zone where these very large earthquake hazards exist. The actual fault lines, or we think of them as planes because of course they are in the earth, they're three-dimensional, but the planes that represent the faults between the two massive chunks of the earth's crust lock up and build up stress over typically hundreds of years and eventually get to the point where they can create these earthquakes that are really the largest on the planet. All the very high eight magnitude earthquakes that the planet has ever seen, at least since we've been recording them, have been at these places where plates converge on each other. So that's all part of the Ring of Fire story, the earthquake system and coupled to it, but distinct from it, the volcanoes. And so the earthquake system you're describing basically is all in the Pacific Basin. That's the one that we refer to as the Ring of Fire, but there are other subduction zones on the planet. The Caribbean, the Lesser Antilles Islands are another arc of volcanoes. Along South America, all around the Pacific and Indonesia, there are other subduction zones like the Himalayas where have converged with continental plates. And even the collision of Africa and Europe has created the Alps. That is a system that was a subduction zone and has essentially come close to shutting down. It's not very seismically active today, but it still has its remnants. And the Greek islands are part of that as well. So all around the world, anywhere where two plates are converging on each other. It's fascinating that plate tectonics was initially rejected as a concept when Wegener first proposed it in 1915. I think people found it sort of hard to believe it. Although when you look at the map of Africa and South America, it sort of begins to make some sense. And then if you look at the fossil record, it's very clear they were connected. Why is plate tectonics such a huge breakthrough? The concept of continental drift had actually been around for hundreds of years before Wegener. And as soon as there were decent maps of the Atlantic Basin, people recognized that kind of congruence between South America and Africa and North America and Europe. 
So the idea had been floated and the fossil record was becoming understood also through the early 20th century. But the idea of the big chunks of the Earth's crust actually moving around at that scale was a really hard one for a lot of people to get their minds around. The debate that happened around the time of Wegener, which is going back to the 19 teens and 20s, was basically he proposed that the continents were drifting, but also that they were being dragged along by this flow deep in the Earth's interior. And there was a lot of objection. How could the plates move that fast or that far? And would the continents, if they did move like that, wouldn't they sort of plow their way through the ocean floor and break it up or something? People sort of pictured a ship going through flows of icebergs. And there wasn't the evidence for that. And the bottom line is nobody knew what was at the bottom of the ocean, right? Once you went offshore, and that's three quarters of the planet's surface, we didn't know anything about the geology. In general, people thought the ocean floor was the oldest part of the Earth. It must be old because it had sunk down low, it was cold, it was just accumulating sediment on top for billions of years. It turns out the truth is exactly the diametrical opposite of that, that the ocean floor is the youngest part of the planet in general, and the continents are the old stuff. The paradigm shift was really that the continents don't drift through the oceans. The Earth's crust and actually the upper part of the Earth's mantle, what we call the lithosphere or the rocky outer shell of the planet, is what's moving by being rafted along by convection of what's below. And so we call it plate tectonics because they're actually these things called lithospheric plates. You think of the Earth as having kind of an eggshell-like outer surface that's cracked and they can move relative to one another. And when they move, new lava wells up in between. That's the mid-ocean ridges, right? So all the seafloor of the Atlantic Ocean, that's tens of millions of years old or even 100 million years old, but the continents in general are billions of years old. So the continents have been moving around, but they're just part of a lithospheric plate, a larger plate. So the North American plate, for example, doesn't end at the shoreline on the East Coast. It extends all the way out to the mid-ocean ridge where Iceland sits. I think that the big thing was that we had to map out the ocean floor and get those samples. It's a very classic case in science where ideas were out there, but the evidence to test them didn't exist. And then a bunch of technological development happened at the same time, really around World War II and soon after. One was mapping the ocean floor. And that happened because of submarine warfare and ships that crossed back and forth between, in particular, the U.S. and the U.K., had instruments to map out the seafloor that they towed along behind them and also magnetometers to detect submarines. Turns out those magnetometers also detected properties of the rocks below quite unexpectedly. And some scientists took advantage of that, Harry Hess and others. The other thing that came along was the ability to actually put a date on rocks, right? That's what we think of as radiometric dating. Everybody's heard of radiocarbon, the idea of using the isotopic decay to get ages. It's not all with carbon because carbon actually is for relatively young things that archaeologists date, but there are other elements in rocks that can be dated. And so that got developed between the 1940s and 60s so that we could actually put a number on how old things were rather than just guess at how old things on the planet are. And now that's developed into a very complex system where we really understand the age of virtually every major event that's happened on the planet for the past few billion years. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, 
Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On a summer night in Paris, American artist Lee Krasner is drifting off to sleep when the phone rings. On the line, news that her husband, Jackson, is dead. Jackson, as in the painter Jackson Pollock. He might, to this day, be the most mythologized figure in American art. But how much of the story that we've been told about him is just that, a myth? On Death of an Artist, season two, Krasner and Pollock, the story about how the art world changed forever. And the story of the artist who reset the market for American abstract painting. Just maybe not the one you're thinking of. Listen to Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell me about the Pacific Northwest Seismic Network. The Pacific Northwest Seismic Network, or PNSN, we are responsible for the monitoring of earthquakes in the whole region of Washington and Oregon, essentially. It extends as well into the overlapping zones in Northern California and offshore, and even in partnership with Canada. Our task is basically to detect earthquakes and to locate them. Earthquakes don't just come with a label that say what their magnitude is or where their epicenter is located or anything like that. So we operate about 350 seismic stations across the region. And of course, we have counterparts in California and around the world. There's a global seismic network and there are a whole bunch of different agencies and groups that 
are actively monitoring the planet for seismic activity. We've got the planet wired up and we're listening to what it does all the time. So the PNSN works in partnership with the US Geological Survey, but that's our mission is to monitor for hazards in our region, to understand what's happening. We actually use the earthquakes to provide insight into those plate motions. The earthquakes tell us about how the plates are moving. And in our region, of course, that's really important because we haven't had a really very large damaging earthquake. There are certainly earthquakes in the Pacific Northwest, but we haven't had one in historical times since Europeans came to this region of the country. But we have fantastic evidence now, only recognized in the past 20, 25 years or so, that a magnitude nine scale earthquake, as big as anything that's ever happened on the planet, took place about 320 years ago. In fact, we know the exact date that it took place, even though there's no written record of it from the Northwest. January 26, 1700, at about 9.30 in the evening, there was a magnitude nine scale earthquake here in our region. We know that'll happen again, but that's all through geological sleuthing of various kinds. Well, wait a second. How do you know the exact date if there's no record? Yeah, it's fantastic piece of work that took place. There's a couple of key elements. The first one was just the recognition that this area is a subduction zone. So if you go back to the 1980s, because we hadn't seen a big earthquake, in fact, we never see very large ones in recent times here, a lot of people assumed that it was a subduction zone that somehow didn't have big earthquakes. A few very clever geologists looking around the coast recognized that there were two key things along the coast. One was a lot of areas of what they call ghost forests, big standing timber along the coast of Washington, Oregon, Vancouver Island that are all dead. When those were tree ring dated with coring out the stumps or the standing logs, it was recognized that large numbers of them, and this is all the way from Oregon, Northern California up to Vancouver Island, had apparently died in the same year. The growth rings abruptly end in exactly the same year, and that year was 1700. In fact, it had to be the winter between the growing season of the previous year and the next year. And along with that, they recognized the deposits, just thin layers of sand from tsunamis. And tsunami deposits were understood because every time there's been a tsunami in recent history, people can go out on beaches and shore areas and find these special sediment deposits that are characteristic of tsunamis. And so those were recognized buried in the soil along the coast, in the coastal marshes and estuaries. So all of that led to the understanding that apparently a very large earthquake had happened, had dropped the land down, allowed the tsunami to flow over it, and the inundation of salt water is what killed the trees. So all of that gets us down to the year. And then kind of a chance discussion at a scientific conference between some Pacific Northwest folks, Brian Atwater here in Seattle, and his Japanese counterparts who were coming from Japan and knew about the historical record in Japan of what they called the orphan tsunami of 1700. That was a tsunami that struck harbors in Japan, but no earthquake was known at the time. No earthquake occurred, people didn't experience it, but all of a sudden the harbors were inundated with large waves. And so that made it into the record because it destroyed a lot of property along the coast. It was written down in the various accounts of harbor masters. It was very clear that that tsunami, because it had struck so many places in Japan at such a large magnitude, had to come from all the way across the Pacific Ocean. And computer modeling showed that it came from the Northwest region of the US and that it had to be about magnitude nine and exactly what day and approximately the hour that it had occurred. Remarkable cross-disciplinary and cross-national collaboration. It's a fabulous story.
It's exactly how science is supposed to work, right? But it takes a little bit of serendipity in there, too. Now, have the recent events in the so-called Ring of Fire been abnormal, or is it about the normal pace that we have better news coverage? There's no reason to think that something strange is happening and earthquakes are getting more prevalent or something like that. On the other hand, interestingly, we saw starting with the Indian Ocean and Sumatra earthquake in 2004, the so-called Boxing Day earthquake, which was about magnitude 9.2, caused that terrible tsunami. And then the Japan 2011 tsunami and one from Chile that happened in 2010 and another fairly large one, more than magnitude 8 in 2014. There have been more magnitude 9 scale earthquakes than there were for a number of decades before that. You have to go all the way from 1964 in Alaska until 2004, 40 years elapsed on the planet with no magnitude nines at all. And then we've had two nines and an 8.8 since 2004. So there's a lot of interest in, well, are they somehow globally triggering each other or something going on like that? Interestingly, though, if you go back, there was a period from 1952 to 64 with a few magnitude 9 earthquakes, then this long gap. And if you go back before 1952, there was another long gap of several decades till the 1920s. We really don't know whether that means that there's some global kind of clustering of these very largest earthquakes on the planet, or whether it's just that we have a small number of events and statistically it's possible for them by random chance to have come kind of clustered in time. That's a very much jury is still out kind of question. The reason it's tough to study that is magnitude nines are so rare. We've only had four or five of them in the past 120 years or so on the whole planet. It's good that they're rare. We just had the anniversary last week, the 60th anniversary of the largest earthquake we've ever recorded, that we've ever known, the Chile earthquake of 1960. Seems to be magnitude 9.5. Remember, that doesn't sound like a much different number, but it's a logarithmic scale. The 9.5 is several times larger than a 9.2. Earthquake activity is not changing because of anything that we're doing to the planet, with some exceptions like induced seismicity in Oklahoma. That's a little bit of a different story. In terms of these very large earthquakes, there's no evidence we're affecting plate tectonics or that it's shifting in some way. But human timescales and geological timescales are just so different, it's hard to have perspective. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. You can build internal resources. That's what the study of psychology is about, building internal resources. Turning towards is one of the most important elements of successful relationships, no matter what kind of relationship it is. The thing that underpins all of this productivity stuff is finding a way to make the journey itself enjoyable. The journey is the destination. The beauty of uncertainty is infinite possibility. When you don't know what's next, you don't know what's next. And thus, anything can be next. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On a summer night in Paris, American artist Lee Krasner is drifting off to sleep when the phone rings. On the line, news that her husband, Jackson, is dead. Jackson, as in the painter Jackson Pollock. He might, to this day, 
be the most mythologized figure in American art. But how much of the story that we've been told about him is just that, a myth? On Death of an Artist Season 2, Krasner and Pollock, the story about how the art world changed forever, and the story of the artist who reset the market for American abstract painting. Just maybe not the one you're thinking of. Listen to Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. I've been a journalist for two decades, writing cover stories for Business Week, Fortune, and Wired. And now, every Monday, I bring you conversations with people who are thinking deeply about work and where it fits into our lives. Like Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella on growth mindsets. The learn-it-all does better than the know-it-all. Or MacArthur Genius winner Angela Duckworth on talent versus grit. Your long-term effort and your long-term commitment are surprisingly important. Each episode delivers pragmatic advice for right now. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Geologic events really occur at a scale that humans, I think, have a hard time dealing with. But some of the most famous, of course, the San Francisco earthquake which wasn't that big an earthquake by the standards you're describing, but apparently hit the city at the right moment when it was at the right level of development and caused enormous damage. It's probably the most famous earthquake in the United States. Absolutely. The Cascadia subduction zone, the Pacific Northwest earthquake I just talked about, was probably 40 times larger in terms of its earthquake energy than the San Francisco earthquake. That one was around 7.8, 7.9 probably. The San Andreas Fault, it's shallow in the Earth's crust and runs right through the city of San Francisco. The earthquake was much closer to where the population center was at the time. It shook violently, probably shook for two and a half minutes or something like that. And most of us who've experienced an earthquake measure it in a few seconds. Sometimes it's over by the time you realize it's an earthquake. Right. And then something like that going on for minutes just must have been a mind-boggling experience. And it did a huge amount of damage. Structures were not built with seismic safety in mind in those times. And also the fire did even more damage than the earthquake because there was really not any way to control them after that event. Wasn't it the Tokyo earthquake that really led to the dramatic improvement in learning how to build buildings that would survive earthquakes? 
1923, we call it the Kanto right. earthquake, and it struck Tokyo and Yokohama, did just immense damage, makes the San Francisco event even look relatively small. Tokyo was already a big city, of course, at that time. Something like a third of the city was wiped out, and hundreds of thousands of people were killed, unfortunately, by that earthquake. That did really provide an impetus for a massive scale of development of both the science of seismology and the distribution of seismometers, and also the building codes. They rebuilt the city in ways that would be much more resilient. Japan gets the reminders very often. There are a lot of earthquakes there. And so the building practices in Tokyo and around Japan to this day are actually much more stringent and really honestly much better for seismic safety than anywhere in the U.S., including San Francisco and L.A. and Seattle. So despite the efforts over the last 20 or 25 years in California, they're still not up to the Japanese standard. California, I mean, has done a fantastic job. There are great seismic codes. And if a very large earthquake like 1906 happened today, I'm sure we would see casualties and loss of property, but we wouldn't see the kind of loss of life that happened back then. There's sort of two standards for building codes. One is essentially survivability. Can you get through the earthquake in that building without it collapsing and killing everyone in it? There's another level of standard, though, which is a resilience standard that says, is the building going to be usable after the earthquake? In general, large structures in Japan are built to that usability standard where maybe the power goes out for a while or whatever. But basically, soon after the earthquake, you're up and running, your economy is going, people can go about their business. For the most part, our structures in the U.S. are built in such a way that you probably wouldn't get killed by the earthquake, but the building might have to come down afterwards because it'll be structurally damaged. And that's a big difference in standard. And of course, it costs money to do it. But it's another case, like so many other things, of money spent up front saves a lot of money in the recovery. That's interesting, though, to draw that distinction in terms of how we design it. When you visit friends in Southern California, they inevitably talk about the big one. But is the big one as implausible as the other kind of geologic events we're talking about? Or is there really an inherent tension in the earth across Southern California makes it potentially susceptible to a pretty large earthquake. Absolutely, yes, there is. There's no reason not to think that the southern San Andreas Fault will have a large earthquake, most likely over the span of sometime in the next few decades. The probabilities of a significant earthquake, if you take the San Andreas Fault and put the Bay Area and Southern California together, it's in the next 30 to 50 years, it's virtually certain that something larger than magnitude 7 will occur. The Southern San Andreas Fault hasn't had a really massive earthquake since the mid-1800s. And 1857, it's called the Fort Tahone earthquake, was the last really big one on the Southern San Andreas Fault, probably larger than magnitude 8. There is great geological evidence that these happen periodically and that the span of time that's elapsed since the last one is longer than the average span of time between earthquakes. Notice the way I said that. I didn't say it's overdue. uh, (laughs) And that's a charged term that... We have trouble using because they don't come in regular lockstep. Earthquakes can come 10 years apart and then go a few hundred years in between on a given fault. It's a probability kind of game though, right? These are statistical things. I can't tell you if the San Andreas is going to have an earthquake tomorrow or 40 years from now. I can say that in this century, it's virtually certain to happen. But is the fault you're dealing with there a different kind of tension than you get out of the plates moving, or is it a function of being at a break point for the plates? It is still 
absolutely a function of being at the edges of two plates where they come together. There are different kinds of plate boundary faults. I described the ones where one plate slides underneath the other one. That's the subduction zone fault. And so the plates are converging on each other. The San Andreas is a fault where the plates are moving side by side. So horizontally displacing. If you look at a map of California that shows the topography, you can actually pretty clearly see the line of the San Andreas through the crust. So where LA sits is sliding northward at a rate of about two inches per year. Two inches, not much, right? But in fact, it's gotten to the point where it's measurable over time. Over the past couple of decades, the precise GPS position of points on the ground has changed in LA relative to east of LA out in the California mountains. Some parts of the world actually had to make adjustments to survey lines in order to account for plate tectonic motions. So the plates are moving across the San Andreas Fault. The west side is moving northward relative to the east side. And at the boundary, unfortunately, they don't just slide smoothly, they're stuck together. The big plates move, but it accumulates that strain because of the friction that just holds the rocks together. Imagine the analogy of taking a really heavy piece of furniture and trying to push it across the floor. You push and push and nothing happens, then finally it kind of lurches when it breaks loose, right? That's exactly what's going on, frictionally speaking, in a major fault in the earth. That's amazing. It seems to me like you have enough different things to look at that you will spend the rest of your career endlessly discovering all sorts of new things. It's a very rich field. It's a young field and there's absolutely no shortage of things to work on. We have so many mysteries in how the earth really works, but we're simultaneously discovering more and more things about them all the time. This time right now is a fantastic time, I think, to be an earth scientist, to be a seismologist or a geologist, because we have so many new ways of acquiring data. We have digital tools ranging from satellite measurements and stuff like the GPS to really sophisticated laboratory tools for looking at how rocks actually work or what the nature of friction is between the boundaries of the rocks. We're always advancing our study of how faults behave and how they work. And then the earth is also always giving us more and more examples. There's always a new earthquake to study somewhere in the world. And earthquakes are going on all the time. Big ones are relatively rare, but small ones happen constantly. There are tens of thousands of earthquakes of magnitude three and four on the planet in a given year. We never run out of stuff to work on, that is for sure. Listen, I want to thank you. This has been a really fun conversation. I've really enjoyed the opportunity to talk about all these things. And I hope that your listeners learn something and then go out and explore more. And now I'll answer your questions. Daniel Kay from California writes, what politically and practically can we do to punish the Chinese in a way that hurts them? Well, there's a lot we can do. First of all, by joining Australia and other countries in shining a light on their guilt and their responsibility for allowing this virus to go out while lying to the world. We can also sue them for reparations or demand them diplomatically for reparations. We can basically take all of the U.S. Treasury notes that they've got and impound them until we get done working out reparations. We can also, I think, establish new rules for dealing with their economy, and we can certainly provide uh, huge incentives for American companies to move out of China. So we're not helpless. There are a lot of things we can do to make sure that China realizes that the communist dictatorship did something really wrong and we're not going to tolerate it. William R. from Georgia writes, you signed a book for me about four to five years ago in Woodstock, Georgia. Will you be back? I sure hope so. Chris and I love coming back to the 
bookstore there in Woodstock. It's one of our favorite places. And I'm really happy to sign a book for you anytime and mail it to you. Thank you to my guest, Harold Tobin. You can read more about The Ring of Fire on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Stone. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Pendle. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. Please email me with your questions at gingrich360.com slash questions. I'll answer them in future episodes. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, the epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak in the U.S. is in New York, and in particular, New York City. New York has over 367,000 cases and over 29,000 people have died. Was there a failure of state leadership starting with Governor Cuomo to slow this virus? I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Every Day Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Every Day Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s, I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You may know Jackson Pollock, the painter famous for his iconic drip paintings. But what do you know about his wife, artist Lee Krasner? On Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock, the story of the artist who reset the market for American abstract painting, just maybe not the one you're thinking of. Listen to Death of an Artist, Krasner and Pollock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.